Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through the end of the chapter 35. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my brother? Who, or I mean, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my mother, no, my brother, and sister and mother. Well, good morning, guys. How are we? Very glad that all of you are here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to, to Mark 3. We'll be walking through that text together this morning and walking through to see uh, what, uh, what God's Word has to tell us this morning. So I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. I, I know that you have. Anyone ever had that moment where it's like, we should get the whole family together for dinner? And then, like, it sounds like a good idea, but you know, like, if you get the whole family together for dinner, for dinner, like, drama and, like, dysfunction, it comes very, very quickly. And I had this problem when I was a kid. Thankfully, as I've matured, I've gotten a little better, where I kind of like to stir the pot a little bit. I knew somebody had a couple of issues, and I would just bring it up and then, like, walk away and watch it just, like, start to descend into chaos. Like, thankfully, I've matured a little bit, depending on who you ask. But like, I just don't do that quite as much. But you know, it's just one of those things is like, if you get families together for any extended period of time, dysfunction is going to happen because we're people. Drama is going to happen. Everybody has the crazy uncle. Like you're not alone in that. Everyone has them. And so like this week I was reading a story about some family dysfunction. So it started with this guy. His name is Justin Anthony Garcia. And he ends up, at the end of the story, getting charged with assault and battery. Like, things descended very quickly. So what happened is they were together as a family. They were having this conversation with one another, and they started having a disagreement. The disagreement started, turned from a disagreement to shouting at one another, to cussing at one another, to, like, threatening one another, to punching one another, until finally it broke all the way out into the front garden, and one of the guys grabbed a knife, and they were getting ready to, like, attack one another. And, like, you would think... Like, this was a big deal. You would think this disagreement was, like, life-altering. Come to find out, the disagreement was about whether almond milk tastes as good as whole milk. True story. Like, this is legitimately what happened. Is like, you read a story like that, and it's like, yeah, family dysfunction, that's real. Like, drama, it's real. And as we read through our story today, like, it, it, make, it comforts me to see this, the, the dysfunction that we see here 
in Jesus' family. There's dysfunction, there's drama that is going on here with us. And, and so we're going to see like some serious accusations are thrown at Jesus. More than just whole milk is better than almond milk. There's some serious accusations that are given to Jesus. And so as we read this story, perhaps you caught on to this. There's, Mark, he does this really fascinating style of writing in some, in, throughout his Gospels. Is He likes taking a couple of stories and lumping them together. And so at the start of our text that we read, it's about Jesus' family. At the end of the story we read, it's about Jesus' family. And then there's something in the middle of the story. And so this is one of Mark's literary styles called a Markin sandwich. This is what he's doing. He's literally sandwiching these together. And so if you guys have ever eaten a sandwich, you know, like, you can eat the bread, and then you can eat the meat, and then you can eat the other piece of bread, and that's fine. Or you can put it all together, and you truly get the full experience of a sandwich, right? Like, it's just better if it's together. And this is what Mark is doing for us. He's lumping these stories together. And, like, if we take each one of these stories in isolation, like, we can learn things about them, of course. But when we start to grasp them and we look at them as a whole, we see truly what Mark is setting up for us here. And so as we look at all three of these stories and we look together at this sandwich, here's, the, here's kind of the big idea that Mark is getting at for us, is that Jesus requires and demands full and complete allegiance. This is what we see in the story. Is this is what Jesus is calling us for. We are, we're seeing this play out for us. Like each one, this is the message of each of these stories. It's saying, like, this is what it looks like to follow me. Here's the thing. It is no, there is not possible to follow Jesus and. It's Jesus or. There's, there's, no, there's no middle ground. It's, it's, it's one or the other. And so he's calling us to this full allegiance, this full life living for him where we declare allegiance to him and we turn our allegiance to him away from anything else. And what we begin to see is like as this plays out in our lives is, is the things that, that we have in our lives that are important to us, maybe our family or our job or, or whatever it may be, is when we place our allegiance to Jesus first, give him our full allegiance, those things begin to fall into their, their proper spaces. They begin to be where they're, they're meant to be. And so there's no such thing as, as following Jesus without full allegiance. We, we can't do that. A few years back, I shared a story with you guys about, about a guy called Michael Jordan, a famous basketball player. And, and so he tells this story about this night that he was going out with his friend, Fred Whitford. And, and so they were getting ready to go out together, and Michael was a little bit chilly, so he went to Fred's closet to grab, to grab a jacket. And as he looked in the closet, he saw, okay, there was all the Nike stuff because, he had, because of his friendship with Michael. Michael had a sponsorship through, through Nike. But there's also all this Puma stuff that was a sponsorship through another famous athlete, Ralph Sampson, that, that Fred was friends with. And so what Michael ended up doing is he grabbed all of the Puma apparel out of the closet, takes it with him, throws it in the floor in the living room, goes into the kitchen, grabs a butcher's knife, and just goes and like shreds it to pieces. And he looks at him and he tells him this powerful statement. He says, you can't ride the fence. It's one or the other. I think that's what Jesus is doing for us here. He's not saying you have to choose Nike over a Puma or whatever, but you, you can't ride the fence. You've got to decide. You've got to follow Jesus. Here's the things, like part, half, being mostly committed to Jesus, that, that doesn't work. I mean, think about a marriage, for example. You're getting ready to get married. You're standing up at the altar, and, and your spouse-to-be says, I promise to love you most of the time. I promise to care for you part of the time. 
I promise to be yours some of the time. You're not going to be like, oh, honey, you're so sweet. No, we're going to run away. Like, that's, that's not what it looks like. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, no, full allegiance to me is the only way to follow him. And so what we're going to see today in this text is there's actually, like, there's this tension between like actually giving Jesus our full allegiance and, and whether or not we want to do that. And, and so what we find is there's actually three responses that are going through our text and three different ways, three different responses, three different excuses, three different things that people decide to do rather than give Jesus their full allegiance. So the first thing that we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 is, is, is they just claim Jesus is crazy. So the first response is simply like insanity. He's insane. He is out of his mind. The, the family is saying, no, this has gone too far. This is embarrassing. And so let's pick up reading verses 20 and 21. It says this. It says, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what, had, what was happening, they tried to take him away. He is out of his mind, they said. All right, so first thing I want us to see, I want us to catch this phrase, they tried to take him away. That sounds real nice, right? Like, oh, they tried to take him away. This Greek word is actually better translated. They tried to seize him, capture him, remove him by force. Like, this is what's going on here. This isn't just a, oh, Jesus, you're so silly, cutesy little Jesus being crazy again. Like, that's not what's happening here. This isn't like, okay, I'm trying to, to slowly remove my kid from the, the candy aisle at the store. It, that's not what we're seeing here. It's, no, my kid sees the candy, and they're starting to melt down, and it's, I'm seizing them, I'm taking them, and pulling them away. Like, this is what they're trying to do to Jesus. They're trying to yank him, to take him away. No, this is, this is what they're thinking is, no, Jesus, Jesus, you're insane. Jesus, you have become an embarrassment to our family. Jesus, you are bringing dishonor on us and on the family. And so they, we are going to seize you. We are going to capture you. We are going to remove you by force to, to get, get rid of this. I mean, perhaps they think, like, they say you're, you're out of your mind. Maybe they think Jesus is overworked, stressed out, underpaid. Maybe they think that's what's happening with Jesus, and that's why he's causing them to be out of their mind. But we don't really know. But what we do know is in the age in which this is written, in this, the Middle Eastern world that Jesus is living in, where shame and honor are two of the highest virtues, they just see that Jesus is bringing shame on the family. They think this is what Jesus has done. And the, the followers of Jesus, are saying, or the family of Jesus, is like, enough's enough. We've got to deal with this. We've got to take care of this. And let's look again at like what prompts them to doing this. The first thing it talks about, like Jesus has entered a home again. So Jesus is back in his hometown. And as we read through the Gospel of Mark, we know Jesus doesn't get much love from his hometown. It says also crowds began to gather. More and more people are there to, to witness the shenanigans. More and more people are here to see Jesus' little charade. They, they can't deny this much more because more people are there. And finally, like, he can't even find time to eat. So Jesus is not only doing all this stuff, but he's not even taking care of his own physical issues, his own physical self. And they're like, something needs to be done. I mean, they're probably thinking, we should have nipped this in the bud a long time ago. We should have dealt with this a long time ago. We've let this get out of hand. We've let this go too far. The family of Jesus are trying to seize him. They're saying he's crazy. They're trying to, to get him, to remove him from this moment. And just a, just a practical thing that maybe some of you in this room know what it's like 
to be the only believer in your family. Maybe you know what it's like to be the only person in a family get-together that's a follower of Jesus. Guess what? Jesus understands. Jesus gets that. He understands what that's like. I mean, maybe your family members tell you it's insane to give up your Sunday or to give up your money or to give up your pleasures or to give these things up. That's crazy. Jesus understands. Jesus knows what it's like. And more than ever in Mark's gospel, we're going to see this also at the end of our text today, is is lines are being drawn. You're going to accept Jesus or are you going to reject Jesus? The lines are being drawn in the sand. And I think it's no coincidence that Mark puts this story right after the calling of the, the apostles. Right after Jesus has called some people, disciples around him, and be like, this is what you're going to do. You are going to live like me. You're going to do what I do. When the line has been drawn, decisions have been made. And so Jesus is asking the crowds, he's asking the people who are, who are around him, what's it going to be? A fan or a follower? Crowd or a disciple? Admire or allegiance to Jesus? What, what's it going to be? The, the lines are being drawn. It's an important little phrase for us in the end of verse 20. It says this, once again, it says of he and his disciples, he says, they couldn't even find time to eat. They're so busy meeting the needs of other people that they can't even find time to eat. They're so busy meeting what other people are doing and taking care of other people that they can't even care for themselves. And I think it's really significant. It says Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is showing, this is what allegiance to Jesus looks like, is that we, we experience the same things that, that Jesus experiences. To be a follower of Jesus is to be like Jesus. Perhaps you guys have heard that over the last few months. We've, we've been going through this principle because this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. The disciples, they are dealing with the same thing Jesus is dealing with. Not only is Jesus not eating, but they're not eating as well. And so maybe a good practical evaluation question for yourself to ask is, am I experiencing some of the things that Jesus was experiencing? Like, to kind of help us see, am I a follower of Jesus? Am I actually going through some of the same stuff that Jesus went through? Now, to be honest, I don't think many of us in the room today would say, Jesus is out of his mind. I don't think many of us, in in this kind of context, would say, Jesus, you're some kind of crazy person. I don't think many of us would do that. But I think maybe the way it looks is a little bit more subtle. Maybe it looks something more like this. It's like, okay, you read the scripture and like, okay, that's crazy. People don't live that way anymore. Yeah, sure, maybe in the first century, but you know, we're more evolved. We're more advanced. We're, we're smarter now. It's, it's not, this is the 21st century. People don't live that way anymore. I mean, maybe it's like sexual purity. Like you think about, okay, Jesus, I know this is what you said, but, but we have things like we have, we have Tinder now. We have hookup apps. We have endless porn at our fingertips. We have ways to prevent diseases that they didn't have in the first century. Sure, that may have been true then, but it, it can't be true now. That, that's crazy. Or maybe it's caring for the needy. What we see Jesus lays this out is to care for the needy. Be like, well, Jesus, we've got a government now. That's their job. Yeah, sure, the Roman government weren't exactly humanitarian as, as much as we are now. That's the government's job. I pay my taxes. That's, that's my job. No. Like, this is crazy. Maybe then, sure, but, but not now. Or maybe you read something about caring for your neighbor as you love yourself, and you think, I don't need anything from my neighbor. 
I don't need them. I don't need anything from them. I don't even have to talk to my neighbor. Like that may have been true in the 21st century when we had to share supplies, when we had to like barter and share food with one another. But that's, that's not true anymore. And, and so maybe we won't come straight out and say, Jesus is crazy. But I think it looks a little bit differently. These things, they, maybe they come off as insanity. They come off as some kind of crazy talk. So the first response to a loyalty and allegiance to Jesus is just, he's insane. He's crazy. We see the next response is they try to discredit Jesus. So the religious leaders come along and they try to say, okay, he is a crazy, he's not a crazy man. He, he, he's just possessed by a demon. There's just this response of it has to be anything other than, than God. There has to be something else going on. So let's look at verse 22. It says this, but the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. I think it's important for us, once again, to notice that these are not the same religious leaders that, that Jesus has been interacting with. These are not the same ones that we've seen throughout most of the text. These are, are people who have come down from Jerusalem. So what, what began to happen is like, okay, this, this Jesus guy, it's getting a little bit out of control. This Jesus guy, like his, his message is getting a little, it's catching on. It's getting a little too crazy. And so they bring in this royal, this official delegation from Jerusalem, the, the epicenter of worship. They bring these people down. It's like somebody has to do something. So we'll bring in the big guns. We'll bring in the big guys and we'll just make sure that they're able to, to take care of Jesus. So not only has Jesus' family said that this has gone on long enough, but so have the, the religious leaders. And like, notice the way that the seriousness of the accusations grow. First, it's Jesus is a crazy person. Jesus is insane. He's out of his mind. Now it's, okay, Jesus is demon-possessed. Like the accusations just continue to grow, and there's nothing more than trying to discredit, disprove Jesus. They are trying to grasp at anything they can to avoid the inevitable. They are trying to avoid anything. They're trying to do anything they can to avoid the fact, the, the reality that, that, he's, that he's God, that he's, that, he's, that he's the true God. And here's the irony about this passage is they call Jesus demon-possessed saying that is how he cast out demons. If we flip back to Mark chapter 1, verse 27, the demons themselves discredit this claim. The demons themselves claim the authority or the, the, uh, the, yeah, the authority of God. Here's what they say about Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. Think about that for a second. The demons have accepted and seen the reality that the religious leaders and that Jesus' family fail to see. It's, it's crazy. I mean, even just think about this. So even if he is demon-possessed, like how does this explain all the other miracles? How does this explain that that guy in the synagogue with a crippled hand now has a hand that works? How does it explain Peter's mother-in-law who was sick now is fine? How does it explain that those people with leprosy that Jesus heals and, and now they don't have leprosy anymore? Like, how does it explain that? Once again, this is nothing more than just an attempt to discredit Jesus in front of the crowds trying to get people to believe that Jesus is something different. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 23. Start of verse 23. But the t Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. I love this. Jesus calls them over. You guys catch that? Notice that the people who disagreed with Jesus are not his enemies. Jesus doesn't treat them as such. 
People were never his enemies. Jesus never treated them as enemies. And the same thing should be true of us. We should never treat people as our enemies. People are not our enemies. He truly wants them to see. He wants them to understand. He wants them to grasp the reality of what is going on here. Let's keep going. So Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. It's, it's a parable. Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and plunder his house. So Jesus goes and he responds he responds gracefully. He pulls them aside and is like, hey, let me help you see this. Let me give you this illustration. Let me give you this parable. Let me help you grasp the, the reality here. And essentially, Jesus says, like, why would Satan cast out Satan? Why, why would he do that? Jesus goes on to say, like, why would a ruler divide and weaken his kingdom so it could be destroyed? Obvious answer, he wouldn't. And so I think it's important for us, too, to see, like, Jesus does not deny the reality of Satan's reign in the world. He does not deny the power of Satan in our world. And I think for us, like, that's a little bit uncomfortable. I know about me, like, I, I just thought of this, like, the, the spiritual realm, like, it's a little bit scary. This thought of things that we can't see is, like, we maybe want to chalk that up to almost anything else that's going on in our world other than saying the reality of what it might be, which is Satan at work in our world. And to be real honest, turn on the news for 15 minutes. And you can see that the, the evil one is powerful and strong. I mean, there's, there's rape, human trafficking, abortion, racism, school shooting, family abandonment. Like, you read these things and like, you have to know that there is evil in our world. That the one, the Satan, whose job, his goal is to kill, steal, and destroy is doing a very powerful job of it. And so Jesus... Once again, in verse 27, here's what he says. He says, let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of the strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and plunder his house. I want to make sure we don't miss the imagery here. This is, this is, this is beautiful. So the first, the strong man, Satan, the devil. The stronger man is Jesus. The house the, is, is the world, Satan's domain. So what we're, what we're seeing is that Jesus walks into the world where Satan rules and reigns, where Satan has power, and Jesus overthrows him. Jesus overpowers him. Every single time that a demon is cast out, we are showing, once again, Jesus' rule and his reign in the world is stronger. It's pow more powerful than Satan. Here's the thing, friends, with Jesus around... We no longer have to live at the mercy of Satan. Maybe you have some sin problems in your life that you've dealt with for so long and you think to yourself, I am never going to be able to get over this pride issue. I am never going to be able to get over this, this greed issue or this lust issue or this, this desire to not love my neighbor. I'm never going to be able to get over that. Guess what? We have a stronger man. We have a stronger Jesus. And those things do not have to stay hold of us anymore. We can defeat those because Jesus... It's the stronger man who has tied up the strong man and defeated him. 
Friends, I just want to make sure we catch this. Is Satan is Jesus' enemy, but he is not his equal. He's, he's Jesus' enemy, but he is not his equal. Jesus defeats him. Jesus defeats Satan, although Satan would never fight against himself. He would never voluntarily destroy his kingdom. His kingdom will be destroyed. And in a bit of irony, it's, it's on the cross where Jesus is tied up, where Jesus is bound, that he ends up defeating Satan once and for all. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Eugene Peterson. He, he became really famous in the Christian world when he translated a version in the Bible called The Message. And, and so he, in one of his books, he talks about this, this bully by the name of Garrison Johns. And so what happened for, for Eugene is for years of his life, this bully would follow him home from school every day and beat him up in front of his buddies. And then finally, one day, Eugene finally got the, the desire, worked up the courage to, to confront his bully. And he talks about it in one of his books called The Pastor. And I just want to share this encounter with you. Here's what he says. He says, I was, in, I was with my neighborhood friends that day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison started in on me, jabbing, taunting, working his way up to the main event. He had an audience, and that always helped. He always did better with an audience. But that's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. And for a brief moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To, to my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. So I wrestled him down, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms with my knee. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless, at my mercy. It was too good to be true. So then I did what he did to me. I hit him, and it felt good. At this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on, so I hit him again. Then my Christian training reasserted itself, and I said, Garrison, say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wouldn't say it. So I hit him again and said, Garrison, say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he said it. Garrison made the confession. Garrison Johns was my first real Christian convert. Now, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus does. But Jesus is stronger. He does overpower the bully. He does overpower the enemy. And he is stronger. And he defeats him once and for all. And if you remember to the beautiful passage in, in Philippians 2, Paul writes of this beautiful song. And he says, On heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. I love that idea, the phrase, under the earth. Guess what? Satan is going to bow. He's going to bow before Jesus. Jesus continues on, verses 28 and 29. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. Now, just want to acknowledge, if you think that passage is, is complicated, confusing, you are not alone, okay? This is, this is probably very, very likely, the most difficult passage to understand in the Bible. Scholars have disagreed and discussed and have gone back and forth exactly what is meaning here. And as a church, we, we value questions and discussion. This would be a great time after service. If we want to talk more about this, we can, we can talk about it. We can see if we can help kind of figure it out a bit more. But, but just to kind of give us a simply put this, this difficult passage, we would be wise not to call what God is doing evil, 
This is, what, this is what the religious leaders are doing. They're trying to discredit the work of God by saying, oh, he's, he's evil, he's demon-possessed. And if you read this passage and you're worried that you've committed it, almost certainly you haven't because the fact that you're worried about it. So what kind of help us to understand this just, just really briefly is, is the Holy Spirit is the one who, who convicts hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us and, and drives us to the Father. And so if we reject the Holy Spirit's moving and evidence in our lives, if we, re- we reject what the Holy Spirit is doing, it's a sin with the eternal consequences because we're never going to accept it. Like, what's a better chance? Especially think about these religious leaders. What is a better chance for them than to see the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, working in the midst in front of them? And, and so this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's flipping the script. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. Jesus accuses, or maybe warns is a better word, Jesus warns the religious leaders against blasphemy. Verse 30 finishes the story, says, He told them this because they were saying he was possessed by an evil spirit. Jesus is drawing the line in the sand. Who's it going to be? My side or his side? There's no neutral. It's one or the other. Who's it going to be? And I don't think we're real comfortable with that idea. Like when I reject what God wants for me, I don't like saying, well, I'm actually following what Satan wants. I don't like saying that, but it's it's true. And so Jesus is saying, who's it going to be? Whose side are you going to be on my side or his side? It's one or the other. Once again, we can't ride the fence. And so maybe, once again, maybe the way that that this looks is... uh, did God really say whatever it may be? We'll, we'll try to discredit it. We'll try to water it down. We'll try to you know, skate past it a little bit. Did God really say that, that my forgiveness is dependent on my willingness to forgive other people? Did he, did he really mean that? I mean, God, do you know what she did to me? Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what he did? Do you know that he walked out and the way that that went? Like, you, 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 sure, that might have meant it for somebody else, but, but, but not for me. Or, or maybe, like, did you really say that you can't love both God and money because I'm seeming to do pretty well. I love them both. Or we start thinking, oh, I'm probably the exception of the rule. Like, sure, that could be true for other people. Yeah, sure, someone else could get in trouble, but, but not me. I'm, I'm stronger. I'm better. I can take, and it's pride anyway, but, like, we start seeing this as, like, Maybe that's what we, did did God really say that? Or or we try to like do some gymnastics to kind of understand this to be a different way than than what ends up happening. So first response is is insanity. It's crazy. Second response is they just try to disprove. The third response is is just noncommittal. It's it's noncommittal. They're they're around Jesus, just just not following him. They're in the vicinity, just, just not a follower of his, not doing his will. And if we're honest, I think for the most part, like if we had to choose, if we had to say like, this is probably us, like this would be the one. I don't think many of us would actually come straight out and say, Jesus is a crazy person. Or, or maybe we might not even say like, okay, we, we won't try to discredit Jesus. But I think most of us, if we we're going to fall in one of these three camps, it's probably this one. This just, this non-committal, like we don't think Jesus is crazy. We don't think he's demon possessed. We're, we're just not all in. We just, we haven't become fully loyal. We haven't declared allegiance to him. We're just not living completely committed lives to him. Verses 31 through 35. 
see what happens. Then Jesus' mother and brother came to see him. They stood outside around Jesus and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. So what we begin to see is like we don't get a reason why these guys are here again. Like, Mark doesn't tell us the family is here for this reason again. We can kind of conclude why they're there as it's in this, this, this Markin sandwich. Like, we, we can see that it's there, and that is people should not to try to determine what Jesus does and doesn't do. The religious leaders try to do that. Jesus' family tries to do that. Like, we would be wise not to try to determine what Jesus does. But one of the things that I love about this passage is, is that Jesus... Jesus isn't calling us to do something that he hasn't done himself. This is important. Like Jesus isn't calling us to do something that he hasn't done himself. When Jesus says, hey, you need to sacrifice. Jesus Jesus is doing it here. He knows what it's like. Jesus, he's he's willing to sacrifice to, to follow the call that God has. Here's the thing about Jesus. Is Jesus is God enough to save us? and human enough to understand us. That, that's who Jesus is. He's God enough to save us. He's human enough to understand us. Jesus understands disappointing family. Jesus, Jesus understands what it's like for a family to have certain dreams and certain expectations for you and, and for things to, to be different. And, and with my, my in-laws here, it's a little difficult to share, but I'm going to share it anyway. Is as, as, uh, as their grandkids are living a whole country away from them. Like, I feel this deeply. It's like there's these dreams, there's these expectations of what life is supposed to look like and what things are supposed to be with grandkids around and that sort of thing. And, and for us, it's like to follow the will of Jesus means we have to disappoint some people. We have to, to live a little bit differently and there's sacrifice that has been made there. And for a while, like, I was just really uneasy about this. And then when they're studying this passage, like, man, Jesus gets that. Jesus understands that. And so we can find this comfort in here. And what we see is like Jesus, he broke all the cultural rules, all the, all the family ties that would have been in that day. And Jesus knows what it feels like. Here's what we find interesting is this word that is used for, for seize. Or, or I think, what was it translated? To, to, to try to take him away. This word is used again in Mark 14 to describe what the, what the soldiers do to Jesus before he's crucified. They seize him. They take him away. What we find fascinating here is is in this story, Jesus does not allow himself to be seized because it is not part of his mission. Later, in Mark 14, he allows himself to be seized because it is part of his mission. We see in the story, there are two groups of people. There are those who are on the outside those who are in the inside, those who are sitting with Jesus. And what I, what I picture Jesus doing is looking at the people on the inside and who are sitting around him, his followers, and he just points at them and said, these are my mother. These are my brother. Anyone who does the will of my father is, is family. And here's what we see. Is, this is real simple. Is doing the will of the father makes us family. 
So what Jesus is doing for us, he's giving us a new way to see family. One that isn't about the, your birth relatives. One that isn't just about like where you grew up. One that isn't just about like the family in which you were raised. He's saying like to be a family is to do God's will. And so the question, are you family? Are you doing the will of the Father? Or do you, do you show up on the weekends if you're not too tired or too busy? Do you know all the right answers? Sing all the songs? Take communion? Do all these things but really have no intentions of living out the gospel? Like, what, what is it for you? And what we see here is we begin to see this dichotomy that happens with, with the way of Jesus is these people who were supposed to be the insiders, his family, his, the religious leaders, these people were supposed to have the inside track to following Jesus they now become outsiders. And those who are outsiders, the, 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 the Gentiles, tax collectors, notorious sinners, women, these people who are meant to be outsiders now have become insiders. And this is what we see with Jesus, is that insiders become outsiders and outsiders become insiders. For, for a lot of us, this is a comfort. It doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter where you've been doesn't matter what has happened before, is now we can still be insiders. We can be, part of this, can be part of this family. But I think it's also a warning for us. Not just to assume that we're insiders. Maybe ask ourselves some questions. Where's the fruit in my life? Where do my loyalties really lie? What do I really love? I think a good question for us to ask to kind of identify this is, is what do I do when God says to do something that I don't like? What do I do? I think that exposes in us like where our, royalty, our loyalties really, really lie. And I love the fact that this passage is in the Bible. Like the fact is like this does not shine a very good light on Jesus's family. But I love that this is here for us because later on we're going to continue reading as like Jesus's brothers and his families, they don't believe him. But then something happens to the family. And if we read Acts 1.14, the, the followers of Jesus, after Jesus has died, Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended into heaven, the, the followers of Jesus are huddled up in a room waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. And in verse 14, it just mentions, oh, and there was Jesus' mother and his brothers who are there. So there's this transition that can happen. It's this beautiful picture of, of what can happen when, with the resurrection of Jesus. It's this beautiful reminder of what Jesus can do. Even these people who were supposed to be insiders who became outsiders, guess what? They were able to become insiders again. This week, I was, uh, I was reading a story about a lady who, who bought a lottery ticket. And she ended up winning, like a lady from the States, happened a couple of weeks ago, but she ended up winning $10 million. And, and what happened was she goes and there's these lottery like kiosks. And she was going on the touchscreen and she was buying her, her regular lottery ticket. And, and then this guy walks in and he just like bumps her out of the way. And like when he does, she, she hits the wrong ticket. And she ends up buying a $30 ticket. The dude didn't even say sorry. He just like walks out again. He just shoves her, walks out, and she is just mad. She's frustrated. She's annoyed because like she wasn't going to buy that ticket. She, wasn't gonna, she was going to buy her, her one, two dollar tickets until she spent the money that she had put in, but there was nothing she could do about it now. She goes, takes her $30 ticket, sits in the car, scratches it off, and wins the grand prize of, or of $10 million. Guess what happened? She wasn't very mad at the man anymore. 
She wasn't too upset with the guy. And, and don't mishear me on this analogy, okay? Like Jesus isn't saying that he's going to get you $10 million. That's, that's, that's not the point. But I think the point for us is, what if we saw the, the, the end picture? What if we could see what Jesus saw? Like, I just have to imagine if, if Jesus' family was sitting here now and we were interviewing them about this situation, I guarantee they would have said, follow him sooner. Don't wait. Like, because they know, like, following Jesus is, is worth it. They know that following Jesus is better. And here's the fact, friends. We see the, we have the end of the picture. We have the end of the story. And we know as we read through the pages of Scripture that he is worth it. That Jesus isn't, it's, it's not worth saying he's crazy or, or like discrediting him or, or being non-committal. That he is worth giving our full allegiance to because he is king and he is Lord and he, and he wins. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you.